Welcome back to Dialogues. Uh, I'm Richard Reeves, and today I had the pleasure of talking to Bill Crystal, who is a, a veteran conservative scholar and political advisor, having worked in the um, Bush uh, White House, uh, and journalist, having uh, uh, been an editor-at-large for The Bulwark uh, for the last few years, um, and having founded the Weekly Standard. Uh, he's been a, a very strong voice against Trump in, on the Republican side, uh, and indeed has come to a, a, a point now as we discuss where he actually thinks that for the foreseeable future, the Republican Party at a national level looks to be a bit of a, a lost cause. And so that raises the question of what center-right Republicans, sensible Republicans, pro-democracy Republicans, and maybe centrists in general should do. And his conclusion is build new spaces in, in the center, but more realistically work with and hope for a successful Biden uh, administration and a successful successor uh, to Biden probably for the next presidential election. So we get into all of that. I guess underlining it for him is the desire to have a, a party that can govern the country, notwithstanding his criticisms of Biden, uh, especially on Afghanistan and foreign policy, and also that's a pro, pro-democracy party. This sounds, you know, we still have to remind ourselves these are crazy things to say, but um, but that's in, in, in the end why he's a pro-Biden, a former Republican. We talk actually start by talking about his own journey from working as a very young teenager for uh, Patrick Moynihan um, and through academia uh, into uh, interprofessional politics. Uh, we talk about what Liz Cheney, uh, we'll probably have to do next the the way that vaccination became so, so warped in terms of its politics. We do talk about the the bungled exit from Afghanistan and what uh, Bill sees as troubling signs of isolationist thinking are now on both sides of the aisle. Uh, and we talk about the way in which the center doesn't hold itself and has to be held and what that means in practice for people of various political persuasions, especially at a, a moment like this, and conclude with Bill's best and worst case scenarios for US politics for the next three years. We finish with the best just to leave on a high note. I hope you enjoy it. Bill Crystal, welcome to Dialogues. Thanks. Good to be with you. Yeah, well, thanks so much for coming on. I've really enjoyed catching up with your most recent work. And uh, I want us to talk about your views about President Biden, where the Democrats are now, where the Republicans are, where politics is, you know, just you know, where, where, where we are in the world right now. Yeah, the easy stuff, you know. Easy right. stuff. Yeah, just we have an hour. <laughs> but um, I just want to situate you a little bit for the people that uh, – that, that don't know you, I'm sure most people will know you. Um, and certainly your 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 resume as someone that left left the academy and then worked in the Bush uh, administration, chief of staff to vice president, and then so on as a conservative. But what's been the arc of your politics? Were you always conservative leaning? Uh, have you moved at all politically or has the world moved around you? I mean, some of both. I think everyone likes the conceit that I haven't changed at all. The world has just moved. Reagan loved that line about he he hadn't changed the Democratic Party; he changed or something mm-hmm. like that. That wasn't quite true, actually. And it's uh, it would be a little weird, actually, not to change at all in one's six plus decades of life. So I have changed. Um, so I started off as I mean, as a on the upper side of New York. Uh, I don't really know. My politics was sort of, I guess you'd say, old-fashioned Cold War liberal. I, uh, Pat Moynihan was a good friend of my parents, and I worked for him as a like twelve-year-old. I didn't work for him. I handed out some uh, leaflets for him when he ran for city council president in New York City in 1965, a losing primary campaign. Did a little volunteering for Hubert Humphrey in '68, which 
for those who are not of my generation, is means I was still a liberal, kind of. I mean, he was a great hero of civil rights, and I very much admired him for that, among other things. But also, of course, he was Lyndon Johnson's vice president. He wasn't Gene McCarthy, who was the favorite of the youth, the new left. He wasn't Bobby Kennedy, who was the favorite of a lot of liberals. So I suppose in that respect, I wasn't on the left exactly. I was somewhat anti-new left, but I wasn't exactly on the right. I always had an intellectual interest in conservatism. Bill Buckley was a you know attractive figure. I enjoyed reading some of these uh, some conservatives and reactionaries from America, but also Britain and other you know countries. I just sort of found it intellectually interesting and challenging. Progressivism always seemed to me a little simple-minded, I guess, and the notion that everything was just getting better and we didn't have to worry about it too much, which is, I will grant, a bit of a caricature. But So I was always had a slight taste for kind of contrarian conservatism. But I worked for, um, I volunteered when I was in college at Harvard for Scoop Jackson, the uh, Cold War uh, liberal anti-communist in 72, and then actually worked for the summer of 76 for Moynihan in his Senate campaign, his first Senate campaign in New York. So at that point, I was sympathetic to a lot of conservatives, had a lot of conservative friends, was sort of involved in anti-left activity on campus, but was still, um, you know, a Moynihan-Jackson Democrat. By 1980, I was a Reagan Republican. That was a pretty common transition people made in, uh, in reaction to the Carter administration, among other things, and to a more attractive Republican vision, it seemed at the time. Uh, I was, at this point, an assistant professor at uh, Penn and then Harvard, and in 85, 1985, I came to Washington to work in the Reagan administration as uh, Bill Bennett's, he was education secretary, mm-hmm. as his special assistant, and then uh, became his chief of staff. And like many people who came to Washington, I came for a year, and then it was two years, and, <laughs> and then now it's 35 years. So this is a very common uh, phenomenon, I suppose. Um, but uh, so then I was in government for about seven years, Reagan and Bush, Vice President Quayle's chief of staff, and uh, under George H.W. Bush. I did some politics and sort of think tanky stuff for a couple of years after that, and then started with Fred Barnes and others, David Brooks, John Bud Hartz, uh, the Weekly Standard magazine in 95, which uh, I edited for over two decades. And then, and for all that time, I'd say I, I was a conservative. I mean, I was a Reagan conservative. I had my issues with conservatism. I, I think in retrospect, I was too much of a, I fell a little bit into the kind of routine into the into a rut of being uh, sort of a too orthodox a conservative perhaps but i was a little more heterodox than other people i'll say in my defense i was a mccain supporter in 2000 i uh there were issues i remember we started the weekly standard in 95 and uh, bob kagan uh, the foreign policy uh, historian and analyst and i wrote the first thing we co-authored together was an editorial in i guess november or december of 95 supporting President Clinton's belated intervention in the Balkans and attacking Republicans, criticizing Republicans for objecting to it on sort of, you might say, neo-isolationist uh, or uh, grounds. Uh, we got a lot of uh, subscription cancellations from the Weekly Standard. You know, I didn't subscribe to a conservative magazine to read defenses of Bill Clinton. So, um, so I think I always had a bit of a willingness to be heterodox um, and... Uh, but it was, you know, was always voted Republican at the presidential level, was involved, knew many, many Republican, you know, senators, members of Congress. I always, I never demonized Democrats, I'll say, might be one slight difference from some people in the last 20 years, partly because I'd grown up as one and knowing one, many of them and mm-hmm. and sort of enjoyed chatting with them in the green room at ABC or, you know, at different functions and so forth. So I, 
I, I think I'm, I'm struck by that, that when you talk to people who are two, you know, 20 years younger, if you grew up in a really partisan and polarized environment, you just didn't have the kinds of everyday experiences that someone like me had, for better or worse. I mean, maybe they were misleading, too, but yeah. where you sort of knew that, you know, this Democratic senator was a pretty good guy, or, or I was close to McCain, and McCain worked so much with Lieberman and with others uh, who were Democrats, so... I just had a little more of that streak, perhaps. So when Trump came along in 2015, I think it was less traumatic for me to break with the party and break with the movement, which I did then in, in refusing to support him or, or tolerate him really as the Republican nominee. And and then over the last five years have been associated with various sort of never Trump, anti-Trump, let's save the Republican Party. OK, we can't save the Republican Party. Let's elect a moderate Democrat type efforts. Yeah, so it's it's uh, fascinating to hear that yeah, that journey. Thank sorry you. if it went out too long, but that's my no, my life no, in a capsule there. Yeah, it's great. It's pretty good. That's like <laughs> the five minute the five minute version of Bill Chris. We're gonna that could be a clip just just in and of itself. It feels to me as if so. You were a, a conservative, a conservative by inclination. I'm thinking that Michael Oakeshott, the British yeah. philosopher, talks about that as conservatism is not uh, a sort of set of ideas necessarily. It's an inclination towards a certain view of the world, towards certain institutions, etc., rather than than a tribe. And then and then it might be that those inclinations find a home in a kind of particular political party. But it it sounds as if even from the beginning, even when you were Democrat, you were quite conservative in your inclinations of the world you said anti-left and campuses and so on quite reasonably respectful of institutions would that be fair yeah i think so i mean i uh, my parents had a lot of influence on me and my father started the public interest magazine in 1965 which was a very which started as a liberal mainstream liberal magazine but was always very alert to the unintended consequences of uh, social policies and since in those days most of these were liberal policies they were there was a lot of sort of cautionary notes about uh, the mistakes of modern liberalism and uh, uh, some Okshadian notes some Hayekian notes if one wants to get fancy and start throwing around names of big thinkers oh, feel I, was free. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was personally a student of Harvey Mansfield at Harvard and oh. so f- became sort of very influenced by Leo Strauss and other others who also in their own way were uh, critical of modern progressivism, perhaps there's a lot to be learned from older thinkers and so forth. So I think a combination of maybe, a, as you say, a kind of temperament or instinct, but also uh, different intellectual forces, whether more analytical and empirical ones, you might say, public interest type articles, James Q. Wilson, that kind of thing, or more philosophical uh, critiques of, of, of modern liberalism. I guess they all had played some role. Mm, so I want to spend a little bit of time on the the contemporary political scene, um, and then I, and then I'd like to dig in a bit around the prospect for centrism. But I was struck by something I, uh, of yours uh, that you'd written about the 2020 election. You said there was it's, uh, the piece is called a, a tale of three possible outcomes, uh, and and in that piece you said it seems likely that it's not just the fact of victory but the margin of victory that will matter, and you compared. Um, the prospect of Donald Trump only being a first-term president with the previous three first-term presidents and went through the the possibilities of repudiation, you know, rejection and retirement, I think, were the, were, were the, the three. Uh, and we clearly didn't get repudiation. I mean, it was clearly it was incredibly close uh, election by any sort of reasonable standards. And so... Where do you, how do you think about what the message that was sent by the 2020 election was? 
Yeah, no, I think I, I, I saw maybe whatever that piece appeared, maybe a week or 10 days before the election, that there was a, that a really big defeat for Trump personally, but for the Republican Party, which had accommodated, enabled, nominated, supported Trump, would, would, would leave our politics and could leave our politics in quite a different place than a reasonably narrow defeat for Trump in which the party itself didn't get pummeled. Um, uh, and I think I was right about that. I mean, on election night, around midnight, we had a, uh, a bulwark live stream, you know, where, and it was pretty clear that Biden was going to win at that point. Um, but it was also clear Republicans had picked up House seats. It wasn't clear exactly how the Senate would end up because obviously Georgia was extremely close and ended up being resolved two months later. But but it was pretty clear, again, there was no Democratic blowout. They hadn't picked up all these seats they had hoped to pick up. They picked up the two or three obvious ones. And I remember people after, at the time were you know, texting and in the uh, chat and on the Zoom, sort of, you know, why are you guys sort of, you guys should be more exhilarated. You've been running Republican voters against Trump for a year. You said the single most important thing is to limit him to one term. And, and it looks like we have, uh, the voters have. And I, and I agree with that. That is the most important thing. But I do think I had a pretty, uh, unfortunately, kind of accurate take that there wasn't a repudiation, that the Republican Party would be Trumpier than someone like me had hoped, that Trump personally could be more of a figure, then uh, he wouldn't just go away, uh, that, that oh, everything that had been unleashed by Trump uh, hadn't really been repudiated. It, it had just lost an election, which people might blame on the pandemic. He had lost an election that people might blame on the pandemic. Uh, then January 6th happened, and of course I thought, uh, like everyone else for about a day, that, well, I mean, now at least, finally, people will see how incredibly dangerous it is to you know, throw matches on the on gasoline the way Trump has been doing, and maybe there'll be a fundamental rethinking. So say that lasted about 24 or 48 hours, and a few people ended up fundamentally rethinking, Liz Cheney most prominently, mm. and a lot of others decided it was politically risky to th- rethink too much, and so they went back into, in a, you know, maybe tiny bit chastened way into the fold of Trump. And then since then, and just to go on for one more minute, I mean, it's pretty re- remarkable that the, I'd say the Republican Party and the conservative movement have gotten worse, not better. So that I mean, yeah. you, if you had said a year ago, and we were speaking about at the very, very, very beginning of December, so a little over a year ago, Trump's going to lose, even you know by the four points he did, and even if they pick up a couple of a few House seats, uh, they did lose both bodies that ended up the House. They still they still lost the House and, and, and lost the Senate. Surely there's going to be rethinking. If you had said, yeah, the rethinking is going to be in the other direction, they're going to be, if anything, more conspiratorial, more fervent. All the energy is going to be coming from Trumpist challenges to conservative, non-Trumpy types, Liz Cheney most prominently, but others as well. Uh, I think we all would have said, or I would have said, boy, that's, I've been pretty pessimistic for the last five years, but even I don't think it's that bad, and it turned out to be that bad. Yeah, I don't, again, I don't think you could have predicted that, um, that things would get would get worse. And I think the narrowness of the victory does have does have something to do with that. Certainly psychologically, when I talk to, you know, just you know, as we record this, we're off the back, we're off the back of Thanksgiving uh, week. And, and like a lot of Americans, f- Thanksgivings and family gatherings are like a focus group in politics. And, you know, and there's no question that among our you know, family that are Trump supporters, that they become much more diehard, uh, much more partisan since Trump's defeat partly because of the conspiracy that he didn't really lose, also because of this view about what Biden and the Democrats are really like, because of the issues around race and so on, which we can we can perhaps get into. But but also on that, I just, I'm curious if you had this experience. The vaccine for me is the example of that. 
That is, the vaccine, A, I don't think, if you had said this is going to be a populist, authoritarian, right-wing movement that will dominate, take over one of our two major parties, obviously the Republican Party, what would it look like? I think I would have said, well, it probably is going to be racially tinged. It's going to be anti-immigration. It's going to be America first, isolationist. I mean, that, that was unfortunate, but predictable. Those elements were around, had been around. They just needed to be unleashed and the, and the forces resisting them needed to be overcome, mm-hmm. which they were. If you had said it's going to be anti-vaccine, I would have said, really? That's not much history of that. That's not a big thing. If, if anything, that was a slightly lefty cause, I believe. Yeah, but anyway, yes. it's, just, it's just not much history one way or the other of that. As I, recall, I haven't studied this closely, but I don't think the equivalent movements of the 30s or 50s were particularly like concerned about something like the vaccine. And Trump, there was a while there where Trump was, looked like he was going to, wanted to take credit for it. And other people in the Trump administration would have been happy to. And so that was a sort of alternate path that maybe Trump didn't go down. I think mostly because the anti-vaccine sentiment bubbled up, I guess, building on the anti-mask stuff that he had done in a way that he couldn't. That is, I don't, what's striking to me about the vaccine thing, and I'd be curious what you think about this as a student of contemporary politics, that's not Trump. Trump didn't no. particularly stir that up. He was, if anything, I think I kind of deep, think deep down he might have preferred to be the hero of the vaccine. Uh, yes. So that's kind of spontaneous. So the degree of conspiratorialism and distrust of public authority and the like that was bubbling around out there, ready to spontaneously, almost spontaneously, erupt. I mean, obviously in conjunction with various media outlets and and so forth, is that's really striking to me. Yes, it's when uh, when Trump himself is being booed at his rallies when he says, take the vaccine, you know, it's a good idea to take the vaccine. And he does it almost like dismissively now and he gets booed by his own supporters. So I think he's stopped saying it now. And it is this interesting moment where it feels as if this sense that you've got these irresponsible populist figures who are weaponizing issues to activate their base in some ways, the causality is really starting to run the other way now. And and I th- a lot of people are, I think, reacting to, to the base. And you've got to figure out then what's happened, like why. So I think that being ambiguous about the vaccine, about vaccine has become a way you have to just, you, you have to sort of respond to the base. There's this great, it just popped into my head, some French writer, Ledru Roland, who wrote something like, there, there, you know, there go my people. You know, I, I I must get in front of them so that yeah, I can I'm their leader. Right, I must lead get in front of them, something like must, that. Yes, that's right. Do you remember that? That's right. Yeah, and, and it's, it's a parade. It, I don't know what the expression is, but well, something like but that. But I'm, I'm, I'm bungling it, but it's no, something like that. I must get in front of them. I, I must find out where they're going so that I can lead them, yeah, something like yeah. that. And, it, and it, is, it feels a bit like that. It feels a bit like something like the, the vaccine. What's interesting is that in the early days, and here it's, this is a family thing, where mostly even the very, very hardcore Trump people in our family did – as the older ones did get vaccinated. They're now wondering about boosters and second-guessing themselves a little bit because there was enough of a window before it got sufficiently politicized that if they were old and at risk, they, they were doing it, and, and with pressure from family members, including us. But but they wouldn't do it now. Hmm. I, I, I think it's Yeah, that's back. interesting. I, if that, I wonder if there's any broader data on that, but that's interesting just as a case study of you know people you know i mean i haven't really confronted that i guess but yeah i think if you could i think if you could ask them again i mean certainly um, the booster take up is very mm-hmm. much lower and yes. the booster you think and people say well of course it would be it's just the booster but i would say the opposite which is 
you'd think once you've gotten the vaccine, nothing terrible has happened. Happened. Why not get another one? It takes you 20 minutes. You walk down to the CVS and get it, or 40 minutes if you have to drive somewhere. And you, you suffered no ill effects from the first uh, one or two, usually. Um, and there's quite a lot of data now. It wasn't quite as obvious at the beginning that the booster does a lot of good. So you'd think the booster take-up would be pretty quick, right? And it's it's been quite slow, really. Which that's the fits, work, that's into your, the, fits into your point. That, I mean, that's yeah. the work we had to do. We spent quite a bit of time working with you know some elderly, vulnerable, very pro-Trump um, family members to persuade them to get the booster. And at one point, I said to I said to one of them, Mr. Family Member, I said, "Well, you're all, it's too late to be an anti-vaxxer. You've had two shots already. I mean, you're you're all in now. You might as well get the third. It's like you can't." But it was that was the conversation where it was pretty clear that if she could have her time, she would have we would have gone back. And that's where, in a way, a different kind of virus is spreading. It's where things are being sort of driven out of this 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 dark place of, of uh, understanding or misunderstanding and distrust and also the point which is like this this really happened under trump which is if they're for it i must be against it yeah. right i think that's really the thing so if tony fauci or biden and and i i can't help running this alternative centrist friendly history past you which is one where donald trump does take huge credit for the vaccine as he should and his administration should take for Operation Warp Speed and for the investment they made it and just said just a real, a major significant positive effort and really be banging the drum about how great it was. And then President Biden, when he comes in, pays public honor to his to his predecessor and say, look, you know, I didn't agree with Donald Trump about pretty much anything, but you know what? They really nailed it with the vaccine. What a great job they did. Everyone should get the vaccine. And you can imagine like a different world where Trump was willing to step into his, but also where Biden actually, or people in his administration could have done, they could have actually taken the opportunity to really praise Donald Trump's administration. But of course, even that's not, that's unforgivable now too. Yeah. And I think, I think the Biden people looked at that and I don't think they were necessarily averse to doing that. Certainly Biden wasn't, but uh, once Trump, once the Republicans, I mean, once January 6th happened, it was just too complicated to sort of, you That's know. That's true. So, but, but I, world, I don't, this, but I agree that is an alternate history. I mean, the broader alternate history is, you know, Trump doesn't come down the escalator in 2015. You know, Scott Walker or Marco Rubio or you pick him, you know, someone becomes the nominee. I don't know. Do our politics look the way they do now? I think the argument for is that it is kind of a global phenomenon and there's a ton of stuff bubbling up and it would have had one vehicle, one 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 spokesman or another. But on the other hand, individuals matter. Trump is a particularly good demagogue, I would say, and particularly suited for the moment, a celebrity, ironically, because he wasn't a Pat Buchanan kind of right-wing ideologue, more suited to be a flexible, successful demagogue. I think that's true in history generally. Um, and that history looks quite different, you know, with, with just a couple of slight changes. Or Clinton beats Trump, which was certainly possible and almost happened. And then does Trump kind of go away? I, I think it's people are over. This is overdetermined, right? I guess, as they say, you know. So I don't know how much of it's Trump contingent personally. But I do think, to get back to our the point about the vaccine, I mean, it's uh, a mixed metaphors or whatever, but I think the, the toothpaste is kind of out of the tube, right? And so even if it was originally contingent on Trump personally being a particularly good winning the nomination, winning the election, choosing to govern in a certain way, demagoguing certain issues. Once that, uh, once we've gone through the last four or five years, you can't, what are they, what's the expression? You can't unsee that, right? You can't, right. you can't pretend that all didn't happen. So something can be not inevitable, but still have very profound effects that are hard to unwind. 
So what does this mean for the Republican Party? I've been reading some of your writing on this now, and my interpretation of it is that you've essentially, at least for the foreseeable future, given up on the Republican Party as as either a vehicle for a genuine expression of conservatism or B, as a credible governing force for government, as a party of government. Is that is that a fair summary of your yeah, current view? Yeah, about with a slight exception of a few states where you could have responsible Republican governors. The, the federal system does allow for some divergence between the national party and the state parties or state uh, states uh, governors at the officials at the state level. Um, and, with this, and with the foreseeable future, I would say foreseeable future meaning presumably the next three years, perhaps. But but I'm very open to things changing pretty dramatically in the you know medium term future, if not the very very near term. Because you know they change dramatically to get us here; they could change dramatically to get us somewhere else. You know? Yeah, and it's I think consistent with your with your view about the relationship between conservatism and the Republican Party, which you've, you've written a lot about. I'm reminded, I can't remember who did this, but there is a political science around the distinction between seeing a political party as effectively a vehicle to be captured uh, and driven in a particular direction and, and as an organic kind of historical movement and and so tony blair in the uk was seen as someone who just basically captured the labor party um for for blairism right which was very very different to what had gone before as opposed to the so the labor party was was just was yes it was recognizably the same institution but it had changed so much on the inside that it was really just the you sort of captured it is that is that your view basically of political parties too they can be captured by very very different i mean i'm sure you know the political science better than i do but i I think uh, some political scientists at least like back when i studied it would have said yes that's how parliamentary parties can often work especially parliamentary parties plus first past the post kind of uk systems they can get captured they got captured in the case of labor it gets captured by blair that gets captured by corbyn and it gets kind of uncaptured Mm -hmm. after corbyn gets Mm -hmm. loses right so uh but American parties have been so much more uh, interest group based, coalitional in character. It's a huge country with a federal system. There's so many, and so that presumably the, the weakness and strength of American political parties was you couldn't actually do this. And that's why I think there are rather mm. few cases in history where this happens. You know, when Joe McCarthy captures, intimidates the party for three, four years, captures a sort of a chunk of it, you might say, but ultimately. Eisenhower outmaneuvers him and the party kind of, you know, swallows him up and kind of gets, parties either swallow up these dissidents or marginalize them, think of Buchanan. Uh, mm. And I think that's the more, con- or, or kind of they, they do change the party, McGovern and the kind of anti-war elements of the Democratic Party. and uh, But, you know, they change it in a somewhat gradual way and so the people who were in the Democratic Party before are still there and it's a bit of a mix of different things and you end up with Bill Clinton who worked for George McGovern I think in his first uh, presidential campaign but also Bill Clinton who looks a little bit more like Humphrey or maybe you know uh, John Kennedy well not Kennedy but you know much more moderate uh, internationalist interventionist foreign policy so I think the American system tends to uh, whatever its other problems and deficiencies to be somewhat reassuringly resistant to this kind of to once and for all capture, which is why I think the Trump thing feels so freakish. You know, it, it doesn't feel right. like, oh, the party's got a tad did. to the right or, you know, it's a little more populist this year this time than it was four years ago. It feels like this is just people use terms like hijacking and takeover, but they're not used to it here. 
Yes, it's almost. I mean, it's almost like he kind of got into the. He came down the elevator, or but then just straight into the HQ of the Republican Party, which of course doesn't exist. That's part of well, the, that's a key the problem. But he has taken over, and it doesn't. I mean, his takeover certainly doesn't appear to be loosening. You've written about this, but it, you know, if anything, his grip on the 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 party. I'm putting this in air quotes. People can't see. Certainly doesn't seem to have diminished even since January six. No, and I think you know recent developments uh, in the House and you know Trump in a sense showing he's more powerful than Kevin McCarthy and and uh, in various ways and and Mitch McConnell endorsing Herschel Walker because he feels he can't stand up to Trump's endorsed candidate here even though Mitch McConnell would much prefer I'm sure a much more traditional establishment Republican in Georgia and probably thinks that more traditional Republican would have a better chance to win so I think that's I think that's really true I mean the one thing one could say is that. And I've toy- so I basically think yes, it's happened and probably is happening and isn't going to change for anytime soon. It's so unusual in the American context to kind of get back to a point I was making a couple of minutes ago that maybe it could change again though. I mean, maybe it's sort of the, you know whatever metaphor you the fever breaks or the you know the, the grip tightens and tightens and suddenly I don't know someone says wait a second and then a hundred people say wait a second and suddenly you get a big move the other way. That was presumably, that's what a lot of people expected to happen after January 6th. It's what some people expected to happen after February, March, April. He's in Mar-a-Lago. You know, he's slightly foolish. He's kicked off Twitter. Um, He doesn't have very high, you know, quality people around him advising him necessarily. Uh, Rather traditional politicians are in charge and major in, in Congress and in some of the big states. But uh, it hasn't happened so far. And I guess I've become pretty skeptical that it's going to happen in the near future. You know, still holding open the possibility that things could break in certain ways where it could look pretty different uh, eight, nine, ten months from now. But I, it's pretty hard to see the scenario where it looks that different prior to November 2022, at least, I think. But uh, I wonder if I wonder how you respond to the argument that there's something of a self-fulfilling prophecy here, which is that if you, people like you, say okay it's our responsibility now to support the democrats and have a strong you know have a because they are a party of government at least and biden's moderate and we'll get to that but uh, and so let's just in a sense give up on the republican party you know for now well what you're doing and you you have seen this in uh, points in history in both the uk where i come from and here where it's 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 a question of like where do you deploy your energy where do you where do you where do you fight right and so you're saying okay hopeless over here so let's try and make the Demo- let's try and help the democratic party to fight its left and be be more centrist but in doing so aren't you in danger of encouraging the republic you know in other words you, you you vote with your feet but you just the the people you leave behind are not going to do the job and the, i am thinking my own friends who are like aei aei type republicans right so you probably know what i mean by that who who absolutely are staying in uh, the party and the machinery and finding candidates who they think are good alternatives because they think that's the battleground, whereas you now think the battleground has moved out of the confines of the party. So I'd say two things. I think it's a very fair question and a very interesting one uh, uh, that a lot of people have tried to think about. I mean, I spent 2017 to mid twenty, well, to early 2020 making exactly the argument you outlined. And I don't regret having made it. I don't think it was wrong to have made it then, which was we need to try to save the Republican Party. It's not obvious it can't be saved. Trump happens to have won one nomination, one election. That doesn't mean everything changes overnight. The same people, 90% of the members of Congress are the same members of Congress and governors and voters and donors. And so why couldn't you uh, 
bracket Trump, sort of make him a somewhat exceptional figure who people like me don't like, but, you know, the party kind of goes along. That's why some of us worked so hard to encourage uh, congressional Republicans to stand up to Trump. Uh, but I encourage people to go into the administration uh, if they were, if I thought they'd be responsible, not that they needed my advice one way or the other, but, you know, if I thought they'd be breaks on Trump's uh, irresponsibility. Uh, I spent a long time trying to persuade people to challenge Trump in 2019 for the president, you know, for the Republican nomination. Not that Trump could have been beaten, but so there'd be someone flying the flag, which one could then rally around after he had lost, presumably in November of 2020. Uh, I supported impeachment in late 2019, early 2020. Again, a chance for Republicans to say, well, that's unacceptable. Um, and so none of that worked, obviously. Then you have an actual choice. I mean, I, I take your point about staying in the party, but you actually have to be for Trump or be for Biden or be for neither in 2020. And I thought it was very important Trump be limited to one term. I was reasonably happy with Biden as the alternative, certainly compared to the actual alternatives mm. in the Democratic Party. And so... We went pretty much, I went pretty much, I guess you'd say, all in for Biden. I helped, we helped a little bit uh, behind the scenes in the late pri- the primaries in terms of trying to encourage independents and Republicans to to vote as they can in many states uh, for, well, for a moderate, it turned out to be Biden, uh, in the Democratic primary, and then, of course, for Biden over Trump. So at that point, it's not a matter of, well, gee, I'm going to pick one party to try to influence. You actually have to pick who you want to govern for the next four years. Once you've selected Biden little hard to not hope he does well and do use whatever minor influence you have to push for him to do well. But again, if January 6th had not happened or, or the reaction to it had been differently, I could imagine myself and I imagine a bunch of other people as well, you know, having much more of a balanced approach to both parties. We all try to support the what we regard as the moderates, the Democratic Party, and hope that they get reelected. But we'll also help the, the people who are standing up to Trump and to Trumpism in the Republican Party. But there is no one standing up to Trump and Trumpism, in effect, in the Republican Party. And look, if these people, if your friends at AEI are more likely the donors to AEI who uh, pay for the think tank that, uh, that our friends work at, if they want to go recruit responsible candidates to run for the Senate in Ohio and Pennsylvania and Missouri and defeat the Trumpists, I'm totally for it. I don't think I have much influence anymore on Republican voters or donors, but that would be great for the country. What's striking is all the people who say they're fighting within the Republican Party. I say this with all respect, and these are friends of mine, as they are of yours, and it's not it's a little unfair, but I'll say it anyway. Are they really fighting for the Republican Party? I mean, where's the fighting? Mm-hmm. You know, I want to see, mm-hmm. where, where are the where are the elevating of the people who are anti-Trump? There's an awful lot of keeping quiet, not, uh, you know, not sounding, of course, like Trump or like the worst Trumpist, but kind of just keeping your head down and hoping it washes over. So that doesn't seem to me to be much of a strategy. And again, I just look at what's happened over the last year. And I can imagine a much more plausible argument for, you know, the, the sort of alternate strategy and future you outlined if, if things were going in a different direction. And if there were, you know, but again, Liz Cheney is there. If they all want to go have fundraisers for Liz Cheney, endorse Liz Cheney, help Liz Cheney, recruit 30 other candidates who are like Liz Cheney, that would be great. But there's not a whole lot of that. And in fact, I just today had lunch with someone who would fit into this category who was kind of, this is the more typical reaction. I don't know why I like Liz Cheney. I probably vote for her in Wyoming, but I don't know why she has to sort of keep 
poking at Trump. You know, just leave him alone. He's the ex-president. You know, we don't have to keep litigating this. What are they really going to learn in the January 6th commission anyway? And, you know, I, well, the media's, it's the media's fault. They're paying so much attention to Marjorie Taylor Greene. There's an awful lot more. There's more rationalization going on among some of our friends than mm. standing up and fighting, I would say. It has to be done more publicly, in, in your view, This because because of what Trump represented. This can't be something that's just done privately. It's not It's not enough to take a position that makes dinner parties more comfortable for you it's actually you've actually got to be uh back to repudiation right in in the same way that you were hoping that the electorate would repudiate trump the republican party and the people we're talking about have to publicly repudiate publicly come out for people like cheney but you you yourself point to polling showing that 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 she's very unpopular (laughs) there's cheney in the republican party now but quite popular with democrats um and so the implication of that seemed to be and I think you may have even said this explicitly, that there is space here for sort of, what does, what does you quote Buttigieg saying, the former, the future, future former, former Republicans. Republicans, yeah. Yeah, should she cross the house? I mean, you can't cross the floor in the US system, unfortunately, but in the same drama that you can in the House of Commons. But yeah, it hasn't happened should she, that much. Should she, should, she, should she switch sides? So just on the Republican side, incidentally, um, I, yeah, well, I, I, think, I, I, I don't know if she should switch sides. Now. I was going to say just on the, on the Republican side that... Um, there's a bit of a catch-22, too, though. I mean, I think some re- one reason the polling shows so much hostility to Liz Cheney among Republican voters is that the Republican congressmen, senators, governors they've voted for, they know, aren't standing up and saying, no, 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 you're getting a misunderstanding of what Liz Cheney is saying from Fox News. Here's the truth. You know, So there's a little bit of a uh, the kind of uh, vicious cycle that you described earlier going on, I think. Um, but that would have to be said would be more effectively set up by me, but by people who supported Trump and then said, but with sorrow, Liz Cheney's right, and we need to come to grips with what happened on January 6th. But how little does one say that, hear that? How many Republicans voted for the January 6th commission? How many Republicans objected when their colleagues who voted for this innocuous kind of infrastructure bill get it denounces, you know, traitors or, you know, uh, the, you know betrayers of, the, of tr- I guess, true Republicanism, which now just means whatever position Trump wants to take. In terms of, yeah, cross, so if we had a parliamentary system, I think that might be something, I've never been, a, I've always liked our system, but you could make a case that we would be better off perhaps with some parliament, aspects of a parliamentary system, the kind of crossing the aisle or having centrist parties like in Germany that can actually beat back the extremes of both, of, on both sides, which seems to have happened there at least for a while, tempor- um, temporarily perhaps. Um, I think Liz Cheney's an interesting question. I think if she wins, as she has said she wouldn't vote for McCarthy as speaker. I assume they wouldn't then if the Republicans had a majority, let's say, wouldn't seat her as a Republican, wouldn't wouldn't let her be part of the Republican conference. She would sit as an independent, I suppose. She could, I don't know if she'd caucus for the Democrats. What she's doing on the, on the January 6th commission now is almost like crossing the aisle, she and Kinzinger. So I think it is an interesting um, question of whether there shouldn't be more of that, as you know, even in parliamentary systems, that's pretty rare. And uh, and often doesn't work out terribly well for the people who do it. I mean, they they, they end up betwixt and between. Uh, maybe could well be the right thing to do. And Churchill's very unusual and actually having a successful career after having done it, as opposed to all those mm. people who left labor to become liberal yeah, Democrats. You know, Ch- Churchill kept doing it. Yeah, he did it twice. Tw- that was really twice. impressive. You know, so but you know, like, the Roy <laughs> Jake, I don't even know that much about. I vaguely remember some of this when, when I studied British yeah. politics. But you know, the people who left labor to become Lib Dems or something ended up whatever. I mean. They, they did the honorable thing in, from their point of view, I think, but, um, and, 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 and people left Corbyn was there and stuff. So, um, yeah, I do wonder whether the system, however, having said all that, 
it's so polarized and so partisan. I do think there's more of an opening in a funny way for this kind of, for a certain kind of centrism. And whether maybe it has to be people in both parties explicitly say, we want to work together, we want to change the system. There are actual changes in the way Congress works and the way parties work and the way elections work that a lot of people have proposed that might well help in this. And you can have a political movement that isn't entirely lodged to one party. I'm not I need to keep telling myself I need to go read up about this, and then I haven't, so this is based on very sketchy knowledge. But if you think of the progressives in the first part of the of the 20th century, um, 1900, 1930-ish, let's say, uh, they're quite important in American history. They have a lot of influence on policies and politics, but they're sort of scattered in both parties. And there were different strands of them. There's Teddy Roosevelt, and there's Woodrow Wilson, and there's some La Fala. I mean, there are a bunch of different people and different elements but there is a kind of, they're also self-consciously kind of a movement, you know. And one could imagine something like that here that would be healthy, in my view. And the truth is, when, you know, if Liz Cheney and Abigail Spanberger sit down, the, the Democratic member of Congress from Virginia, mm-hmm. uh, sit down and talk about some issues, they'll have big, pretty big differences, uh, in public at least. In private, I'm not sure if the differences, even on the social issues or on you know, economics, would be that great. On foreign policy, the differences would be quite small, I think, actually, especially if you leave aside some very specific sort of mid-2005-ish issues on, you know, uh, interrogation or Iraq and stuff. But going forward, I don't know, are the fairly hawkish Democrats in a very different position from the sensibly hawkish Republicans on China, on alliances, on Putin? Not so, you know, not so much. Uh, So... I think there's more potential for that than we've seen. The system is, is certainly not friendly, though, to that in various institutional ways, historical ways, and then just the kind of crazy polarization we now have, which really is itself, which makes it hard. That is, I mean, this is, this is, as you sort of said earlier, it's kind of a chicken and egg thing, right? I mean, once you have this much polarization, you're not rewarded for trying to break the polarization. So, right. And therefore, it's harder to do it, even though it's more necessary than ever to do it, you know? It's like a ratchet. There's a sort of polarization ratchet in effect. If the the more the worse the polarization gets, the worse it makes. Yeah, the way the way I think of it is, um, five ten years ago we used to be very concerned about partisanship and hyper partisanship, and especially in Congress. And I think that was a legitimate concern. But you know, things get more partisan than they get less partisan. It's not the end of the world kind of thing. I do think something big happened. I don't know quite when. Trump was a key part of it, of course. But so the last five six seven years, when partisanship or hyper partisanship went to polarization. And, and polarization does imply more than just I'm a loyal Republican. It implies that the voters get polarized, not just the elites are sort of partisan. And it implies that the polarization isn't just about some sets of issues, uh, but about a whole view of life and about sort of hating the other side, uh, maybe, you know, above all, which isn't necessary. Yeah. You can be a pretty strong partisan and not, you know, think the other side are horrible. You just think their policies are misguided. So I, I feel like the, the current, thing. what do the social scientists call it? The uh, effective polarization, is that it? The, uh, mm-hmm. is really, a, yes. that's kind of, again, once it kind of spins out of control or comes to the degree it's at now, it's a little hard to see. And it's hard for any individual that's kind of a collective choice problem, if you want. There's no, it's not in any one individual's interest to fight this massive thing that's going on, and so people don't fight it much. No, in fact, their incentives, at least in the short run, are absolutely to go with the 
go with the grain of that partisanship. There's, Arthur Brooks has this nice line where, where he says, when did our opponents become our enemies? Mm. And that is the feel you get that when you're talking to people on, on, on either side, actually, you had the same thing during the, the Trump, uh, during the Trump years, I think, from people on the left with more cause, which is the loss of the presumption of goodwill. And the loss of the presumption that this person is actually acting in good faith. And so what, what I hear from the really the pro-Trump people that I know, again, largely through these extended family networks, is that, is that Biden's not a good guy. You know, he's not a good man. Um, not, not that they disagree with his policies, etc., but that he's actually, he's ill-intentioned, that he's malevolent. Um, uh, and so that's the difference. Because then it's not, then, then you're just fitting the policy argument to fit with that prior view right and so the irs expansion of the irs to try and do more tax evasion is part of biden's attempt to institute a kind of political campaign against conservative nonprofits and bring about a sort of communist oversight type thing it can't be that it's just bad policy say i don't even know if it is good or bad policy but that's not that's not the question right. anymore right? It's, it's not a policy debate one i'm not I'll talk about the democrats for a, for a bit because an alternative to trying to build the center in the center if you like uh, is to build centrism within a political party. And in, in a good equilibrium, you might argue, uh, so I should say, I, I worked for, the Liberal, for Nick Clegg, the Liberal Democrat Deputy Prime Minister, having moved from... Oh, I did, to you did, okay, Democrats. so uh, you know much more I about what, yeah, I was, so, what I was mentioning. <laughs> so so I just, it's really interesting to me. Actually, there was a, I remember we actually convened this, uh, this was before the coalition formed, but a dinner party of sort of progressive conservatives as they called themselves then, liberal Democrats that myself included then, and a bunch of Blair-leaning Labour people. And, and, and this colleague of mine opened the dinner by saying, let's just start by saying we agree about everything, essentially, right? Like we could have, but we basically agree. So what we're here to discuss is where do we employ, deploy our energy? It was basically your, your question. And, and I was there to say the best thing to do now is become a liberal Democrat. You know, now is the moment we could actually have a proper, vibrant, centrist party finally break the duo, you know break the duopoly reform the electoral system etc and then somebody else made the argument for no 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 come over to cameron's conservatives you know we're compassionate when you we go and then other people saying no no although gordon brown is a dour old whatever you know labor's still the place and so the argument was basically saying imagine we're going to there's about 20 of us there we're acting as a block and some some politicians where do we and we did move like a block where would we go and one of the arguments you've made is into the Democratic Party, because you've suggested the Democratic Party is governing, it's doing a better job of holding its left at bay than than the Republicans are holding their right at bay. And I wonder if I'm, I've been reading some of your stuff from like a year ago and so on, where you really did insist that Biden's a moderate, he's going to govern as a moderate, and whether your whether your view about any of that has changed, because you might see some of his nominees some of his policies as as less moderate or certainly able to be spun as less moderate than I think your tone has implied you expected him to be. Yeah, I'd say I'm I'm worried about some of it, worried more about how it appears, worried some about how it is really in terms of his governing, the actual legislative proposals. As you say, some of the nominees, though, though others are fine. I mean, and I, and I should make clear, I'm not, you know, signing on to this. So if to use your dinner party analogy, you know, I'm thinking about the next year or three years, not about the next 10 years. Now, someone could respond fairly, well, come on, you got to take a first step at some point, so you can't just put off these things. But the presidential system in particular does make it kind of important, unless you have a credible way to get to really a centrist, a Macron, a centrist presidential candidate who could win, 
in you know the next cycle it's sort of hard to you could take the longer view and say i'm just not going to worry about either party much they'll work it out and we'll live through that and i would have said that for incidentally 10 years ago a lot of people did take that attitude and we're building up centrist you know policy efforts and so forth a little hard to do that i think with the trumpy republican party so i guess for me the sticking with the democrats is partly reasonable hopefulness about the democrats which is a little less hopeful perhaps than it was a year ago and mostly uh, considerable fear and, and worries about the Republicans, which isn't alleviated compared to where we were a year ago, and I think remains kind of urgent. And you don't want to let the urgent totally dominate the important. So I, I'm very much for other people, and I don't mean this in a facetious way. I mean, I'm very much for other people working on all kinds of electoral reforms and uh, policy issues and finding places sponsoring bipartisan legislation that's kind of the first step towards what you're talking about right uh, you know so the spanberger and gallagher should co-sponsor foreign policy and defense legislation and two other some other people should do the same and uh, i was happy that bipartisan infrastructure bill did get 19 republican votes i don't know anything much about whether it's really great policy or not but it seems pretty harmless i guess and uh, at least and probably some of it's pretty good and so, that was a good sign. So maybe, and that's, I think, where one just doesn't know, right? These things are kind of contingent on individuals, on events, on, on certain things breaking in a certain way. And so I think it's important to hold open the prospect of uh, centrism in, in both parties or between the two parties or in a third party uh, while working practically. You know, Joe Biden is president and he, you know, uh, Tony Blinken is Secretary of State and Lloyd Austin is Secretary of Defense and Janet Yellen is Secretary of the Treasury and Powell is Chairman of the Fed. And it's, a, I'm okay with that, you know, to, to use your dinner right. party thing. If I were a dinner party with those people, I wouldn't have, I would have a lot of issues with implementation and emphasis, and but I wouldn't have massive issues on their view of the economy or the world. So where, what does trouble you then, on, just on the Democrat side? It sounds like, by and large, you think the substance of what the administration is doing is okay, but you've indicated there are some things that worry you a little yeah, bit. I, I think it's a little bit of going too far left and sort of just normal, you know, let's just throw $3 trillion at a bunch of social welfare policies that people have been working on for a while, and some of which are probably good, but maybe not like the thing we have to do right now when we have a pandemic and when we have actual uh, uh, things that should be dealt with first. And then we minimize inflation because that doesn't fit with, you know, the narrative. But then it turns out inflation may, may be fine ultimately, but at least short term is higher than one thought. And, and they don't seem at all equipped to do that. I'd say I, a lot of my friends are sort of worried about the Biden administration being or seeming to be too far left. I think there is some seeming to be there. There's some truth in being. There's a little more truth in seeming to be. For me, I'm more worried just about the overall competence, honestly, and uh energy and execution so afghanistan i wouldn't have pulled out i think it was foolish but they really did do it badly and i don't buy all this revisionist stuff about it was always going to be a mess and all of course it was to some degree but they made some decisions that were really just foolish in terms of let's just get the military out and worry about the civilians later and then the kind of stubbornness of not admitting uh that um they messed it up a little bit, and that happens, and you know, we're moving on, and there were ways to handle that that I think would have ameliorated the damage. I think it did much more damage than they realized at the time or than 
maybe conventional wisdom realized, not because people care so much about Afghanistan or had such a strong view that we had to stay there forever, God knows, but that it's just had a general sense of, I don't know, aren't these people supposed to be the ones, Trump's the kind of guy who does this stuff where he just imperiously says, get out, I want a military plan to get out in two weeks, and I don't want to hear anything complicated about why it might take six months and you should do it in a staggered way working with allies. You know, that's Trump. That's not That was not supposed to be Biden, and that really was Biden in this case. And I'd say a little bit the same is true of the of the uh, Build Back Better legislation and the sense that it's, I don't know, has anyone really explained how these programs are going to work? They decided that universal pre-K is great. I have to take one example. Mm. And I really don't know much about this, so I could be wrong in what I'm about to say, but mm. I don't know. Is anyone, we have a lot of pre-K in the United States. A lot of people could afford to pay for pre-K at, at, at you know, child care providers or uh, private schools. Some public school systems have it. Some public school systems have it. You pay a little more. And I don't know, we're just going to sort of universally decide that my little grandchildren need to have the federal government pay for their pre-K? I don't know. It seems a little uh, odd. Maybe it's a good idea, but I wouldn't say this is something that had been argued for 10, you know, whatever you think of Obamacare, we've been having a healthcare debate a long time. And there was clearly a problem with pre-existing conditions. And there were clearly people who needed to be taken care of in the individual market. They did a bad job themselves of explaining it, I would say. But anyway, I feel like the Biden people haven't explained things very well. Pretty insular. And and again, just he's old, you know, and so I feel it's a little more of a Jimmy Carter problem than a left wing problem. Carter was not that left wing of resident. He was a centrist Democrat. It's just that people at some point decided they're not really up to running the executive branch of the federal government the way they should. It was the, and the party was the is kind of a mess. And they only have 50 senators, to be fair, and 221 House members. There are a lot of extenuating circumstances here, too. And the Republicans are utterly uncooperative in a way that's kind of unusual in American history on anything, even debt ceiling or, or CR to keep the government going. And the Democrats don't do a very good job of explaining that the Republicans are being utterly uncooperative. So they then the Democrats get blamed because the thing's kind of a mess, you know? And so uh, I, I just feel like the po- political management of the Biden administration isn't quite what it could be. I agree, and I think I think partly it feels to me that sometimes they're looking a bit too much to the left rather than to yeah. the, to the to the to the voters, particularly those in the centre, and they they do sometimes give gifts yes. unnecessarily to to their opponents. I I agree with that. I, I do think that the on the Afghanistan thing you've written about this, the Biden doctrine. I was going to ask you about that. That uh, this is a sub, this is a point of substance now, which is. There's the execution, the botched execution of the withdrawal, and I and I I don't think there's any other way to to see it um, than that. And I and I agree that it would have been better to be honest about that. But there's the broader question here, which when when he's explaining it, you, he set out what you you saw as potentially a, a new doctrine, which is very much in line, in substance, if not in rhetoric, with Trump's some of Trump's view about America's role in the world, and really this retreat. And as someone that was kind of reared on you know, Blair, and then it's kind of liberal interventionism, and so on, too. And many of us have had to recover, I think, from some of our views about the limits of intervention. It does does worry me a little bit that someone who's seen as a as pretty centrist, by and large, on domestic policy, at least, leave aside some of the arguments, we, you know, discussions we just had, does seem to take a more radical view on foreign policy. And you you have been pretty critical of him for that. Yeah, and I've been worried about it. I've, I've hoped that this was sort of Afghanistan-specific. That is, on that one issue, he felt that he and President Obama had been sort of misled by the generals. I don't think that's fair, but whatever, in 2009-10, and that they had been persuaded to do the surge and to stay there. 
and he wasn't going to let that happen again. And when you listen to him talk about NATO or about other issues, you could persuade yourself that he's more of a uh, Bill Clinton, let's say, centrist. Uh, and he did support, for example, intervention in the Balkans. But uh, I don't know. So I was worried, though, by some of the rhetoric. I mean, what happens, of course, this is what happens in politics, right, that you make a particular decision based on whatever particular factors push you. Then, of course, you want to justify it. So suddenly you're inventing a doctrine, which is not the doctrine I think that he should be articulating, but that he sort of did articulate in a couple of speeches. Now, he hasn't done much of it since, to be fair. And maybe it was just a kind of excuse for, you know, oh, we can't have endless wars, um, rather than a real doctrine. But I mean, Biden's never been unlike Blair, God knows, or or. or Gordon Brown, or really any of them, uh, most of the British prime ministers or most American presidents, he's been a a good politician, I mean, and a decent person and, and a reasonable person. He's never really been a leader of any part of the party. You know, he's gone along with what he took to be the center of the party at different times. And he was anti-busing, sort of much more. He, I think he didn't nominate or second Jimmy Carter. And I think he was the only senator to support Jimmy Carter in 76. And so he was kind of a hmm. self-consciously centrist Democrat, but from Delaware, which was quite, at the time, a centrist state or at least a pro-business state. You know, it still is in a way. And... Um, so he that he went left a little bit in the 80s as everyone else did, you know, and then came back to be sort of Clintonian in the 90s. So I don't know how much oomph is coming from the top in terms of shaping the party. And it's an administration of, I think, decent people again, many of them competent, but not again a lot of, you know, here's a way to think about the world. Here's a way to think about the economy. It's much more of, well, we can, we should spend some of this, some of these ideas, good ideas. I shouldn't quite do that. I also think a sort of lack of urgency about I mean, democracy, which is pretty important. They haven't done that much on in terms of the electoral, you know, the way the electoral, the system works between November 3rd and January 6th, so to speak, the kind of Rube Goldberg situation, situation system we inherited, but also on some of the voting issues, um, immigration, where I've become much more liberal over the last few years. But whatever my own views, there are a bunch of things that could be done, not all of which require some macro deal with Republicans, dreamers, and, you know, uh, H-1B visas, and you've got to... We have a labor shortage, and we have inflation. I think you can talk to your colleagues at Brookings, and I can talk to my friends at AI, and I think they would all agree that two things you can do if you have a labor shortage and inflation are let in more immigrants, because that will both reduce, increase the supply of labor, and to the degree it swallows up a little bit of wage pressure, reduce inflationary pressures in that way. And trade, remove trade barriers, which are both uh, create supply chain shortages, as we now know, and, uh, and, and um, also raise prices. So and neither of those has he wanted to take on, I guess, democratic interest groups or, or interest groups generally. But I don't even think it would have been that hard to do so. So, it's a fun, so he gets the image of being both kind of stubborn and pushing a bunch of left-wing stuff, but not actually pushing two or three things where I think the policy outcomes would be good. And I think there'd actually be a lot of support for them. I don't really think most Americans are sitting around, or even most people in the steel industry, honestly, are sitting around saying we need to have tariffs on EU. You know, tariffs were put on, incidentally, with horrible mm-hmm. justifications about how it's national security on, I don't know, importing steel from, you know, Belgium or Netherlands or something. I mean, so... <laughs> Anyway. No, I agree. And it could be led. I think potentially that people could be led on this. It's occurring to me now that, so I was never a huge enthusiast for, for, for Biden, for sure. Um, uh, and I had some, some brief dealings with him, you know, indirectly through my role in the British government and some people around him. And it was, but decent man, I thought, and certainly moderate. So I had the same, you know, 
sense of him that, that you did and maybe what the moment required which was and he said his first one of the first things he said was we need to lower the temperature we need to look each other in the eye again we need to you know and I, all, all of that was what i thought the nation needed and actually an incrementalist decent moderate guy you know and actually the fact he was a bit older not necessarily even a bad thing you know that sort of sense of like your your, your, your favorite grandfather or whatever but i wonder actually given how much worse things have gotten is that we didn't need someone a bit more radical a bit stronger, no that's a, a good bit, a bit you know a bit more vivid actually i think we i thought we were like yeah he's not going to be vivid but that's a good thing and i now wonder if actually his lack of vividness and leadership is more of a weakness than we thought it was going to be no, that's a good formulation which i think i'll steal but um if i can now the version of it i've been using which i think is similar though is that has occurred to me is that the reason he got elected, which was a very good reason of partly normalcy, moderation, incrementalism, as you say, civility, uh, cooling the temperature, that may not necessarily be the the ground, the best grounds on which to govern for four years. You know, and I think, and I, and I might even put it this way: he hasn't pivoted from exactly the reason he got elected to 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 really thinking through. Okay, what can I do over two years or four years to govern? in ways that some of which I'd be for sort of more conservative, more moderate things in some areas, but I actually would be for a couple more radical things in some other areas too, or take or breaking some more China, let's put it that way in some areas. I think it's very true of the pandemic. Probably the thing I've followed the, the policy area, I followed the closely, not that I know anything really about the science, but I've just happened to have you know, fallen in with various public health types. And it's kind of interesting, of course, and the degree to which they've just let the bureaucracy continue to chug along at the CDC and FDA, and those are impressive people, and those are good agencies, and they had to be protected from Trump. So all of us spent a lot of time saying, leave the scientists alone, and that was the right thing to say, in my opinion, in 2020. But at some point, they do need political choices have to be made. And the idea that we don't have instant tests, rapid, cheap tests here in the U.S., unlike in all of Europe, because the FDA has somewhat arbitrary guidelines for what's a medical test and what's not, and and is just kind of crazy at this point, especially with this new variant. And I've discussed this directly with people high up in the Biden in Biden world, and they're sort of, well, we can't overrule the scientists because we criticize Trump for that. It would look bad if we did it. At some point, you have to like stop fighting the last war here. You've got to govern as effectively as you can. And I think they've done some good things, of course, and I don't have a huge problem directionally with where they are on, you know, on, on testing and uh, and on, well, I do on testing, but on, on certainly not on the, the you know, uh, vaccinations and so forth. But, but there's a little bit too little. Okay, we, we got elected. We've calmed things down for a while. Uh, didn't succeed in calming things down entirely because of Trump and the Republicans, but that's not their fault, really. And now we've got to govern effectively. And I, I kind of feel like they're not quite focused on governing effectively as much as they might. Yeah, so I think that's I think that's the right formulation. In some ways, they're still trapped in too political a, a world. Too I, for some reason, Blair keeps <laughs> coming into my head. But somebody had this, someone describe Blair when he was rumping to a landslide victory as like a, a man carrying a Ming vase across a highly polished floor. <laughs> you know, just this sense of the fragility of it. He was so cautious and. We had that. You have a little bit of that sense too, of a sense of they're not very anti-fragile, right? They kind of they do they seem in some ways to be behaving in a slightly sometimes in a slightly fragile way. Well, I, I need to let you go, Bob. But can I just ask you to do like a thought experiment thing? We just at the sure. end here. If you, if can you, you said you think about the next three three years, three to four years. So you're thinking through the midterms and and the next this cycle effectively. Um, what does within sort of real within reasonably realistic parameters let's put it that way 
What's the scenario that frightens you the most in terms of what happens with Biden and the Democrats and the Republicans, et cetera, and what's the result of that? And what's the one that gives you the most hope? So what's the, well, how could things pan out in the worst way possible politically over the next three or four years? And how do you think they could pan out in the best way possible within, within reasonable boundaries? I mean, on the first side, do, do, do the, do the yeah, worst. The worst I have no, end on, I have a pretty high. obvious and simple minded yeah. Biden administration fails or is judged to have failed fairly or unfairly. Trump continues to dominate the Republican party, wins the nomination, wins the election, uh, wins it cleanly or wins it with some election over subversion and becomes president with a Republican Party that's much more subservient to him beginning in 2025 than it was in 2017, and with him having had the experience of those four years. And I don't know where we are then. That I think is very dangerous. Um, Agreed. Best case, I do think, would be a pretty successful Biden administration, which for me would be both centrist and competent, so, you know, and, and lucky, because obviously you can't control a bunch of things also in foreign policy and a business cycle and, and the like. And uh, and a Democratic Party that uh, I don't know that Biden can run again, but let's just I'm totally making this up. But, you know, a centrist Democrat of the next generation or maybe skipping a generation, Buttigieg or someone we know is the nominee and wins. Uh, The Republican Party loses badly and feels finally that it's paid a price for being Trumpy and has to correct course. But that would be a uh, that would probably be the. I don't see a happy story with the Republicans winning, really, in 2024. It's possible, but I don't think it's likely. And for, so, for, and I don't think as a, you know, you can write a scenario where the Republicans go Trump with Trump, the Democrats go left, and there's a conceivable Macron-type third, you know, up-the-middle independent presidential candidate, but that's a pretty, that would be unprecedented. It could happen. And so I guess I'm I'm sort of stuck with just a good successor to Biden. Yes. Well, thank you for for laying out the hopeful case at the end there, Bill. Thank you for your work on behalf of, of centrists everywhere, um, of centre-left, centre-right. And as one of my AI friends said, he said, actually, the most important thing is that, you know, we're all, we're all hyphenated, but we've all got, if you've got centre in it, then we're, 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 on the, we're on the same side. And so f- not the, you quote the Yates poem, of course, about the centre, can the centre hold, but it doesn't hold itself, right. I guess, is, is the point. And I, I would describe the, the work you're doing now as just saying, you know, we talk about the center cannot hold. Well, it has to be held by people doing actual things, uh, doing the holding. It's an active, it's, a, it's an activity and you're one that you're deeply engaged in. So thank you well, for thank that you work. For those, thank you for coming. I think that's a very good formulation. I've thought about the Yates poem a lot as everyone has. And, right. I mean, it's too fatalistic, the center. And, you know, if I could take an extra 10 seconds on Yates, of course, he wrote that in 1919 sure. and it was, it was very apt after World War One, and seemed, of course, 20 years later, wildly prescient as we went through the 20s, especially the 30s. But you could also make the case that the center did hold from 1945 to 2015, much better than people expected in terms mm-hmm. of the world as a whole, in terms of the spread of democracy, in terms of winning the Cold War without going authoritarian ourselves and so forth. And that was, but that, the center didn't hold. A lot of people held the center, you know, beginning with yes. Harry Truman and, you know, whoever you make up, whichever, take whichever heroes you want from Europe and from America, but there were, and elsewhere, you know, but there were a lot of them over those decades. Yeah. And it, it probably survived too yeah. long in the sense that it survived for long enough for a, at least one or two generations to grow up thinking that it somehow was self-supporting. Yeah, very good point. Very good point. Yeah. And 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 we sort of forgot, you know. So so you know, I'll, I'll say liberal in the, the centre as a you know, 
in that sense and i've written a little bit about this myself which is we sort of forgot that liberalism is something you have to fight for because it had been triumphant for so long that it became the ground on which the contest took place rather than the, the actual substance of the contest and so liberals lost and centrists i would say too lost their fighting spirit because we just basically won right uh, especially after 89 and, and, and until the recent populist revolt and so so i do think that having to kind of pick up our tools or our weapons again um after many 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 decades of like not having had any combat experience um in the face of the populace and i think that's partly why it's taken so yeah. long and i think it's partly why biden's struggling too because i do think that we want a fighting centrism yeah well said well. uh and we haven't we haven't really had that had to have that for a long time. We got lulled, I think, into some, a little bit of a false sense, of, and and we were complacent and made lots of mistakes. But but I also do think that. And um, uh, so uh, what I'm hoping is that more people will follow your lead and uh, not just talk, but well, fight. yours too. And I hope we can get together at some nice dinner party sometime and discuss how we're how we're going to do in the U.S. What That's what you tried to do in, in, in the U.K. and maybe ultimately sort That's, of succeeded, right? I don't know. It's hard to say. Well, but Brexit's kind of a problem, that's, right? But whatever. Kind of, you know, Brexit's kind of a permanent <laughs> yeah, yeah. problem too, right? So, so that's a, okay. That's we a won't have that discussion now. But, yeah, but but let's do but let's do it again on a podcast or over dinner. But thanks so much for your time, pleasure. Thanks for listening to Dialogues. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. And if you did, please take a moment to follow, like, rate, and share the podcast in all the usual places. And send me your thoughts and ideas, including for future guests, to dialoguespod at gmail.com. That's dialoguespod at gmail.com. I'll see you next time.